Hi there! Paula Eamon here with a heart full of love for you and a heart's desire to encourage you to endure this short life with joy and hope by the grace of God, for the glory of God. Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, has set the example of how to run. Look to Him as your perfect example. The setting for today's episode is the Southeast Asian Theater of World War II. Episode 2 is an excellent companion to this episode because its setting is the European theater of the same war. If you haven't already listened to it, let me encourage you to do so. God's people shine brightly in both places during that dark time, just like you can in this present age. Why? Because we have the same exact God. Now to episode 5, For the Sake of the Gospel. Born in Iowa and frequently exposed to the Bible and songs that taught truths about God, Darlene McIntosh committed herself to a future on the mission field when she was just 10 years old. A decade later, Darlene McIntosh became Darlene Dibler. She and her husband Russell served on the mission field in the area that is now called Indonesia. After ministering there for several years, they were captured by the Japanese and separated. World War II was in full swing. Russell, a man of strong faith and love for the Lord, was taken to Pare Pare, a civilian camp. Darlene, along with around 1,700 women and their children, were taken to Kampali, a dilapidated sanatorium. There they were forced to work to advance the Japanese war efforts. What did it look like when that man of God was forced away from his precious wife at the hands of cruel men? Let's visit that scene, as explained by Darlene. On March 5th, while working in the garden, I was attracted by a noise in the yard and looked up to see a Japanese soldier wearing black tennis shoes with the big toes separate for climbing ropes on ships, rounding the corner of the house. The Japanese had come. The soldier pointed his gun with fixed bayonet at me, motioning me toward Miss Marsh's house. As I was being propelled reluctantly forward, Russell, the Jaffreys, and more soldiers joined me and my escort. We were herded into Miss Marsh's living room to join the Presswoods and the three single women. While we stood at attention, a soldier with a gun pointed at your back tends to make you do that, the two officers slouched in the chairs. The soldiers' uniforms were tattered and faded, their faces hidden behind unkempt matted beards. They were filthy from who knows how many days of island hopping and marching through the jungle. Their headgear were caps with a bill in front and a flap in back to protect their necks from the sun. These were the infamous shock troops. A chill went through me. The commanding officer announced from his very relaxed position that we were prisoners of the Imperial Japanese Army. Russell was standing in his customary way, with his hands in front of him, the palm of one hand resting on the back of the other. It would have been impossible for him to have been holding anything in his hands, but the posture nevertheless infuriated one of the officers who snapped a brisk command in Japanese. A soldier strode forward, raised his sheathed bayonet, and began to beat Russell's hands again and again. Russell dared not resist. I was appalled. Finally, Ernie could stand it no longer, so he said, Russell, they want you to put your hands down at your sides. In helpless anger, I thought, you dirty rats, if you had just said so, but... Ernie knew what they wanted, for when he had first met the soldiers, he had raised his hands above his head. This infuriated the officer, and with his sheathed sword, he beat Ernie's arms unmercifully. 
Realizing that his gesture of surrender incensed the man, Ernie dropped his hands to his sides and the flailing ceased. This senseless maliciousness had its desired effect. We were greatly subdued. However, Russell said later to us, They hurt my pride more than my hands. We were asked to state our nationalities. When Margaret Kemp, Philoma Seeley, Russell, and I identified ourselves as Americans, the officer announced in a tone of voice meant to humiliate that the whole American Navy had been sunk and we were their prisoners. Then he came to Dr. Jaffray, who replied that he was from Canada. Like the rest of us, he was terribly nervous and stuttered over his answer. The interrogator looked at him in question, Kana Nada? Where's Kana Nada? He obviously had never heard of Kana Nada before, so we felt less worried for the Jaffreys in the Presswoods. Miss Marsh was from England, and apparently he had never heard of that country either. While this investigation was being conducted, Ruth Presswood tried surreptitiously to inch her way around a chair to Ernie's side. A brisk command was given, and a soldier propelled her back to her place with the butt of his gun. Finally making preparations to go, they again impressed upon us that we were the prisoners of the Imperial Japanese Army. We were to have contact with no one outside the premises, nor were we to leave the conference grounds. If we did, the penalty would be very severe. We would be shot. By March 8, 1942, just three months from that Sunday when we listened to the news that Pearl Harbor had been bombed, the rape of the Netherlands East Indies was complete. The small Dutch army garrisoned in the islands and the tiny Dutch navy and air force were helpless before the onrush of landing forces that flowed in a seemingly unending wave from Japanese transports. The days went by, tension eased, and we settled into a loose pattern of cooking, eating, Bible study, prayer, gardening, reading, and walking the perimeter of our property. I was in the house one morning when I heard a truck approaching in the distance. It stopped. The soldiers must be across the gully at Miss Marsh's house. Then it rumbled into the Jaffray yard. Japanese soldiers and an officer entered the house. We're taking the men, they announced. Get some clothes together for them. No suitcases. Quickly. Alarm filled me. Running out to the pavilion, I found a pillowcase and put it into it, Russell's Bible. A notebook, a pen, shaving gear, clothes, and other things I thought he would need. Hurrying back into the house in search of him, I met an officer coming from Dr. Jaffrey's room. "'What's wrong with that old man?' he demanded of me. There were many things, and it took quite a while to enumerate them. He had diabetes, so he had to be on a very strict sugar-free di diet. He had been in a coma not too long before we had come to Bententingi. He had kidney trouble, a heart ailment, involuntary physical shaking that affected his right hand and arm in a particular, and before I could say anything more, he shut me up with a wave of his hand and snapped, Go in and tell that old man he doesn't have to go. If he needs all that medicine, he's not going to live very long anyway. I dropped the pillowcase into a chair and ran to the door of Dr. Jaffrey's bedroom. I caught a glimpse of him putting things into his black satchel, which had belonged to his senator father. They say you don't have to go, Dr. Jaffrey. I retrieved the pillowcase, then dashed out into the yard, my eyes searching for Russell. Where was he? What had they done to him? Then I saw him. He was already in the truck with the other POWs. He was standing in the back near the tailgate. I was terrified for him. Every unreasonable fear told me that he was being taken away to be executed. 
Why had the officer said that Dr. Jaffray would die anyway? All the other separations we had endured gladly, for those had entailed the cause of Christ's kingdom, but this, this was different. The thought of this separation was excruciating. I handed Russell the pillowcase and looked into the face that had become so dear to me. A cry of protest, of fear, strangled itself in my throat. You sadists! You didn't even let me say goodbye! I swallowed hard and clenched my fists. You'll not have the satisfaction of seeing me cry. The driver started the engine. Russell leaned over the tailgate and very quietly said, Remember one thing, dear. God said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. The truck started with a jerk and disappeared down the road. I never saw him again. What was the one thing Russell wanted his beloved wife to dwell on? The never-ending presence of God. He was leaving her, but God never would. Nevertheless, Darlene was devastated, and understandably so. That night, the missionaries comforted themselves by reading a devotional that contained these verses. O oh God, my soul is cast down within me. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Lo, I am with you always. Every verse spoke to the exact cry of Darlene's heart. The word of God was her comfort, and it would prove to be over and over again throughout the horrible conditions and heartaches of the brutal war. So what did she do with the comfort she received? She comforted others which reminds me of the verses in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. How did she comfort people? By reading to them the very thing that had comforted her, God's Word. Listen to her description of the safe haven her barracks, Barracks 8, became. Immediately following evening roll call, everyone came to the front section of the barracks to hear the announcements and check the work schedule for the following day. The first night in our barracks, I established a practice that I believe was responsible for maintaining the high level of compassion and cooperation that existed in our small community. That night and every night, we invited everyone to remain while we read a portion of God's Word and prayed. We were united by a recognition of a mutual need from within for help from one who is greater than we. We faced a common enemy from without, and if we were to survive, we had to function as a unit. The interpersonal barriers of language, race, and color became non-existent and an ever-increasing appreciation of one another enabled us to face with courage the common plights of most prisoners of war, suffering, hunger, 
deprivations of every kind, forced labor, bombings, disease, psychological pressures, death, and lonely graves. People from other barracks often joined us during evening devotions. Throughout those very difficult years that tried our souls, God kept our barracks a calm center in the eye of the military storm that raged around us. There was a sharing, a concern, and a love that was unique. We struggled to preserve family feelings, to discover ways to lift morale, to encourage, comfort, and bear one another's insupportable burdens. I am convinced the harmony we experienced in Barracks 8 was due to the spiritual shelter beneath which we all hid when there was no other refuge. Now two weeks later, enter into the scene of Kampili, a Japanese man named Commander Yamaji. He was ruthless. In fact, before coming to Kampili, he had beaten someone to death. He threatened to hang a woman for sending a package to her husband. Did his threats impact Darlene? Well, yes. After she made a helpful suggestion to him for how to boil water, he hit her incredibly hard. One day, the women were scrambling to try to finish getting the isolation quarters ready because fly contaminants were causing dysentery to spread rapidly through the camp. Even though Commander Yamaji yelled for them to come, they feverishly kept working because they wanted to finish. Enraged, he beat one of the women, Elsie, who was one of Darlene's friends. A nun interfered. Yamaji beat her. Shocked that he would hit a nun, Elsie got back up to defend her. He knocked her over and kicked her in the back near her kidneys. Paralyzed with pain, she didn't move. He thought he had killed her. His shock paused the beatings enough that her life was spared. The incident left her deaf in one ear and damaged wrists that grew back crooked. Besides the beatings, Yamaji developed a merciless rule that every woman had to kill and capture 100 flies a day and bring them to him. It wasn't until he was counting 60,000 flies each day that that rule vanished. On another occasion, he accused a native man of communicating with one of the women. In the scorching heat, Yamaji brought the man before 1,000 women, one by one, asking him if she was the one. The native denied knowing all 1,000. In a furious fit, Yamaji caned and kicked the man, probably to death. The women never learned of his fate. One devastating day, Darlene was given the news that her husband Russell had died. To add to the devastation, she learned that he had died three months before she was told. What was Yamaji's response? Well, before I answer that question, I want you to know that Yamaji had been watching Darlene. He saw her excellence in organizing the workforce. He observed her sacrificing herself for the weaker prisoners. Annie observed her unwarlike responses. Listen to their conversation. Late that afternoon, Mr. Yamaji called me to his office. He was standing behind his desk. Nyonya Daibler, I want to talk with you, he began. This is war. Yes, Mr. Yamaji, I understand that. What you heard today, women in Japan have heard. Yes, sir, I understand that too. You are very young. Someday the war will be over and you can go back to America. You can go dancing, go to the theater, marry again, and forget these awful days. You have been a great help to the other women in the camp. I ask of you, don't lose your smile. Mr. Yamaji, may I have the permission to talk to you? He nodded, sat down, then motioned for me to take the other chair. Mr. Yamaji, 
I don't sorrow like people who have no hope. I want to tell you about someone of whom you may never have heard. I learned about him when I was a little girl in Sunday school back in Boone, Iowa, in America. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of Almighty God, the Creator of heaven and earth. God opened the most wonderful opportunity to lay the plan of salvation before the Japanese camp commander. Tears started to course down his cheeks. He died for you, Mr. Yamaji, and he puts love in our hearts, even for those who are our enemies. That's why I don't hate you, Mr. Yamaji. Maybe God brought me to this place and this time to tell you he loves you. With tears running down his cheeks, he rose hastily and went into his bedroom, closing the door. I could hear him blowing his nose and knew he was still crying. We weren't supposed to leave the presence of a Japanese officer without permission. However, since he didn't return to dismiss me, I sat quietly praying for his salvation, that he might understand new life in Christ Jesus, and someday go home to share God's love with his wife and family, to be a light in some dark, possibly even remote area of Japan. Realizing finally that he was not coming out of his room, I left knowing from that moment on that Mr. Yamaji trusted me and understood why I was in the Netherlands East Indies. How adequate his Indonesian was to fully understand what I shared with him, I didn't know, but there had definitely been a response. So many what-ifs come to mind. What if Darlene had been a lazy Christian? Would this conversation have happened? What if she had been sloppy in her work? What if she had understandably succumbed to depression and lethargy? Ultimately, I don't know, but I can't help but think that the Lord used her upside-down testimony to point Yamaji to the amazing grace of God. Friend, unbelievers are watching how you go through your trial. The way you respond can gloriously point them to the one who wants to save them. Endure with hope. The gospel is reflected when you cling to the anchor of your soul. May the excruciating pressure of your trial yield the diamond of a soul saved. Once we have made it to heaven, that will be all that matters. What then of Yamaji? Much to Darlene's relief, he came to her rescue while she was imprisoned by the vicious Kempe Tai. Because of him, she was not executed. After the war was over, Darlene had the opportunity to talk to a Japanese chaplain He communicated that he was thankful his country lost the war because it showed his people that the ancestors whom they worshipped were not in control, nor did they have the power. He was already seeing opportunities to share the gospel. He also told her that he and Yamaji had talked about the Lord. She rejoiced. Darlene's race was run in a cruel place. Throughout the war, she suffered starvation, separation, isolation, beatings, interrogations, diseases, pest infestations, and the death of those closest to her. What sustained her every time? God's word. Listener, you are no different. You cannot run your race without the word of God guiding you. More precisely, it is impossible to run your race without the God of word guiding you. Read of him. Memorize the truths about him. Sing and listen to songs about him. He is your rock. On him you must depend. I want to close our time by sharing a song and a psalm that brought Darlene comfort in her darkest hours of a Japanese war camp. As you listen to these words, let her hope in God meet you today. 
He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance and our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, the Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Excerpts for this episode today were read from Darlene Dibler Rose's book, Evidence Not Seen. Believer, be strong and let your heart take courage. God will never leave you or forsake you.